Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For years, I have wanted Dr. Ben Witherington to come to Second Presbyterian Church to speak. He is a highly celebrated New Testament scholar who writes and speaks with eloquence and clarity. Well, in a chance conversation that I had with church member Carol Widmeyer, I learned that Ben is a close personal friend of hers. So, seeing a string I could pull, I pulled it. I asked Carol if she could pave the way for me to invite Ben to come to Second Presbyterian. She paved, I invited, and now Dr. Ben Witherington is scheduled to be our 2022 Edmonds Lecturer. Well, with Easter before me, I went to Ben's commentary on the Gospel of Mark to see what he would have to say about Mark's resurrection account. And I found out that Ben agrees with the majority opinion that the last verses of Mark's gospel, beginning with verse 9, were added to the original gospel. The early writer did not put them there. The verses are, to use Ben's words, a patchwork quilt of material taken from Matthew, Acts, and other sources. However, where Ben does not agree with the majority is in his opinion that the ending that we have is not Mark's original ending. There was more. He thinks the ending is lost. He has a theory of how it happened. He thinks that the end of the scroll of Mark's gospel simply wore off. It happens all the time with scrolls. We have plenty of ancient scrolls to prove it. When a scroll gets rolled and unrolled constantly, it's the beginning and the end that take the most abuse. Ben thinks that's what happened to Mark's gospel, and that's why it ends so abruptly. Listen to Mark's account of the resurrection and listen for its abrupt ending. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, 
There is the place that they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. They left the tomb and did nothing. We know that the news spread of what they discovered. The early church, after all, sprang to life based on accounts of these women and the early disciples. And Ben says that the entire gospel has set us up for this moment when the women get past the shock of the resurrection and spread news that it's true, that Jesus is raised from the dead. He says, first of all, these women have been models of faith throughout the gospel. And then they are the only ones showing any courage and faithfulness through the trial and crucifixion. These very women, they are named. They did not run away at the crucifixion. They were there, actually at the cross, holding vigil with Jesus as he died. That took amazing courage. And now, though Jesus is dead and their hopes are crushed, they courageously come to the grave to anoint his body. The grave is actually a cave with an opening covered by a stone that can be rolled away. And when they get there, they find the stone has been rolled away. That would scare me, but it evidently doesn't scare them. They go inside. They go inside and they find a young man there dressed in a white robe, an angel. Well, now they're alarmed, but still they do not run. The young man speaks to them and tells them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He's not here. Look, look, there is the place where they laid him. Go tell his disciples. Tell Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And that is what terrifies them. The greatest news that they could possibly hear, the news that death does not have the final word on Jesus' life, that is what causes them to flee and not tell anyone what they've seen, what they've heard. But then the word of the resurrection does get out. The disciples and others do meet up with Jesus. So do these women. They have the interactions that ignite the beginning of the whole church movement. Someone learned what happened with these women because whoever wrote the Gospel of Mark tells us all about it. So why doesn't Mark tell us? As I told you before, Ben says he did. But the ending is just simply lost. He says that we have part A of a powerful encounter with holiness and Scripture has prepared us to listen for part B. Here's just a few examples of other scriptural encounters with holiness. Part A, Moses is terrified when God speaks to him at the burning bush. Part B, Moses eventually finds his voice and does what God tells him to do. Go to Egypt and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. Part A, Isaiah is terrified when he goes into the temple to worship and he encounters God 
filling the place with his presence. And he, he begs God to leave him and let him be. Part B. Isaiah eventually finds his voice and does what God tells him to do in the temple, to go to God's people and tell them the devastating news that Judah will fall and they will be sent into exile. Part A. Simon, Andrew, and John are terrified when, after fishing all night and catching nothing, they pull in a huge haul of fish just because Jesus tells them to do so, to throw the net on the other side. And Simon's terrified, falls at Jesus' feet and tells him to go away, to please let him alone because he's a sinner. But then part B, these three eventually find their voice and leave their nets behind and follow Jesus so as to be fishers of other followers. Part A, now women go to a tomb to anoint a body for burial and they are terrified when they find it empty and an angel inside calls them to go and tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee. They are terrified at first, flee, telling no one. But then, part B, it's not there. The ending that Mark was leading us the entire gospel to get to is not there. We are missing the moment that follows fear when women leave behind their fear and find their voice in spreading the news that they find in the first of the moment hard to believe. I'm not sure that I agree with Witherington that this is not the original ending, but he's starting to change my mind. He might be right, and if he is right, I'm going to have to reconsider the other three Easter sermons on this passage that I have preached at this church. But if he's right about this, I sure would like to know what Mark wrote and not get stuck in the moment. But you know what? We have the other three Gospels, Matthew, Luke, John, that tell us of those encounters that Jesus has with these women and with the disciples. And maybe we've been done a favor. Maybe fate or providence has done us a favor by leaving us stuck here at the end of Mark's Gospel because that's where we get stuck so often in our lives, stuck between fear pulling us back and hope pulling us forward. For it's true, isn't it? When the door is wide open to life with God, we're often afraid to walk through it. The Shawshank Redemption might be the most overused movie for sermon illustrations in the last quarter century. I even mentioned the movie in a sermon earlier this year. But I can't help but to return to it again because it illustrates that moment of fear at the boundary line between death and new life. I want you to consider a moment that two prisoners have when they stand between the pull of fear and the pull of hope. Brooks has served time for 50 years, and now he is about to be released, and we see him standing at the prison gates finally open to him for him to leave. The camera angle, though, is from his back. It's from inside the prison, as if there were a gravitational pull pulling him back into the prison life that he is now afraid to leave. And we later learn that Brooks cannot cope with the gift of new life and chooses the grave. 
In that half century of incarceration, he had accepted the reality of a caged life. He had given up hope that he could ever live a life beyond its walls. Then, at the end of the movie, we see that moment repeated. Red has served for 40 years, and he's standing in the same spot. The prison gates finally open for him to leave. Only this time, the camera angle is on the outside of the prison walls, on the outside of the gates, as if there is this gravitational pull of hope that will pull him out from the prison and into a life lived in an entirely different way. That's where the women find themselves in this passage. They are at the open gate, the open grave between death and at life. And at first, the gravitational force of fear is too much for them. They are afraid even to hope that this can be true. And maybe you know how that can be. To be afraid to be healthy because it would mean giving up both pleasures and excuses. To be afraid of a deeper bond with a loved one because it would mean that you would have to be more vulnerable. To be afraid, to be empathetic toward others that you oppose or would like to dismiss because then you would be responsible for appreciating their point of view, for considering life walking in their shoes. To be afraid of helping others because it would mean surrendering something of yourself and maybe something of what you own. To be afraid of faith itself because it would rob you of reasons to put yourself first. That's the part A of facing the open grave. The pause that Mark gives us with his abrupt ending or that fate gives us with the abrupt ending by losing the end of the scroll forces us to consider why we are so afraid sometimes. Afraid to live better lives, afraid to realize our potential in being followers of Jesus and being bold in God's cause. And then the Pauls invites us to wonder what would happen if we did as we were told by the voice from the burning bush or the presence in the temple or from the shore or from the grave. Would it be something like the family that somehow gets past hesitation and embraces a community of faith as a way to grow in their love of God. The couple that gets past anger and gives up on the competitive game of exchanging gifts of revenge and commits again to the hard sacrifices of love and reconciliation that will not only keep their marriage together, but allow it to thrive. The mother and child who get past their fear of the abuser and with nothing but hope enter the turning point ministry to begin a new life with unknown but possibly wonderful gifts ahead of them. The one who gets past her fear of the challenges of a new job and location and begins the work that will better use her gifts and make real positive impact in the world. The one who overcomes fear of condemnation and rejection and finds his voice speaking out for the concerns and causes of God's realm. 
I can almost hear someone objecting that these life decisions are not what Easter is really about. They would point to the moment of death and the promise of the resurrection that takes us from this life to an eternal life with God beyond the day when our physical lives are done. And yes, hallelujah, that is the hope and promise that we celebrate today. It is the hope that is tugging at us though there seems to be this line of death that we cannot get past, that we cannot see past, like the horizon where the sky meets the land or the water, there is this hope that beyond that line that we cannot see, there is a whole new world out there. The good news that there is a life beyond the horizon of death. But the moments that I describe don't replace that moment of life beyond death, but actually reflect it and really are a part of our beginning to live it. The stranger does not say to the woman, grab hold of my robe and you'll ascend with me to heaven where you will again see Jesus. No, he says, go home. Go back to where it all began for you and the first disciples. Go to Galilee where the adventure of following Jesus first began. Go back to where you live your everyday lives and you will find the risen Jesus has beaten you there. You will find that you can begin living your resurrected life with him. Mark Wheatley says, going to Galilee is walking through the door. It's going home to those places closest to our hearts, places where we are the most vulnerable, most unimpressive, most powerless, and most afraid. And it opens to us the possibility that the risen Jesus is there to greet us and live with us. Mark's passage reminds us that death is not the only thing that we're afraid of sometimes. Sometimes we're afraid of the resurrection. We're afraid of living the resurrection life with its demands for love and commitment and community and risk and compassion and justice and reconciliation. But even if we are afraid, Jesus has beaten us home and we are not alone. Not now and not at the grave and not in the world to come. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.